Well, howdy. Hey, uh, good morning, FaithBridge. My name's Timothy Atik. I'm the director of Breakaway Ministries in College Station. If we haven't been together before, it's just great to be here with you the next two weeks. I want to start by sharing that my wife, Catherine, and I, we got married on October 14, 2006. So we are coming up on our 13th anniversary. And as we think back to our wedding day, uh, man, I loved our wedding. I thought that we had an incredible uh, wedding, primarily because all of our friends and family were in the same place and they were all required to get us a gift. Like there's nothing greater than registering for your wedding because it's like, here is the list of gifts that you need to buy me. And that's a really beautiful thing. Uh, so we got through our wedding ceremony and then we went to our reception. And I personally thought that our wedding reception was next level. I'm half Palestinian. And so we had a Middle Eastern wedding. Uh, some of it was Middle Eastern. So if you've ever seen like on TV or a movie, Middle Eastern weddings where they put the bride and groom up on chairs or on people's shoulders and there's people dancing in a circle and yelling and singing and some cousin pulls out a drum out of nowhere, like that was our wedding reception. <laughs> to the point where my sister-in-law's high school friends that came to our wedding reception left saying, I wanna marry an Egyptian, like I'm not Egyptian. <laughs> But I hope that that happened for them and all worked out. And so we enjoyed our wedding. We enjoyed our wedding reception. Then we went to St. Lucia for our honeymoon. And we got back from our honeymoon and we just played hard for our first year of marriage. We traveled a lot and we ate way too much good food. We had an incredible first year of marriage. And during our first year of marriage, we had different people along the way saying, man, the first year of marriage is the toughest year of marriage. And we were like, Really? Like, if this is as tough as it gets, we are crushing marriage. Like, clearly, we are on a different stratosphere of marriage than any other newlywed around us. And we're basically writing the book on this thing. We should start counseling people because clearly, we are onto something that no one else is onto. But then the chapter changed, and it was year two, and Catherine and I had some bigger fights than we had ever had in our relationship, and, and we began to realize, like, oh, marriage is awesome. Marriage is incredible, but marriage is also hard work. And now, as we are stepping into the 13th anniversary of our marriage, I think I would still say the same thing. I think I would say, man, marriage is incredible. Marriage is awesome. I highly recommend it. I still consider myself a poster child for the How Did That Guy Get That Girl Foundation. Many of you men are in that same club. I'm looking at you like, yeah, you're in it. Yeah, you get it. But I think I would still say, man, marriage is incredible, it's awesome, but it is hard work. It's extremely hard work. And if you're married, you now realize that when you stood on that altar and you said, I do, what you were really saying is, I do commit to fight with you for the rest of my life. That's really what you said, I do to. And so we're starting this two-week series that's called marriage worth fighting for because today we're going to start just by talking about conflict in marriage. It's not a matter of if you're going to fight. It's a matter of when you fight, how do you fight? Because conflict is a part of every single marriage. 
And the good news is that conflict doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can actually be a God thing. But you have to know how to do it well. So that's what we're talking about this morning. Now, if you're sitting there saying, well, I'm not married, and so this talk doesn't apply to me. No, it absolutely applies to you because this morning, I don't want to just save a marriage. I want to save any relationship that's being threatened by conflict. Like if you're one of those people that when conflict hits with any relationship, if you're the person that shuts down, if you're the person that cuts people out of your life, if you're the person that explodes in anger, if you're the type of person that gives people the silent treatment, if you're the type of person that gets passive-aggressive, This talk is for you today. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me this morning to a book in the Bible called The Song of Solomon. Don't be afraid to use your table of contents if you need to, but we're going to be in The Song of Solomon today. And some of you guys hear that we're going to be in the Song of Solomon, you're like, whoa, I'm not prepared for that, okay? This is a book that uh, single men weren't supposed to read until they were at least 30 years old because this book can get heated, okay, in the ancient Near East. So um, let me just tell you what the Song of Solomon is. It is God's instruction manual to us on finding love, making love, and maintaining love. Like God in his kindness devoted an entire book of his Bible to romantic love. And as if you were to spend any time reading the Song of Solomon, what you would see is it chronicles this relationship between a man and a woman, and the whole book is just the man and the woman talking back and forth to each other. Um, the, the guy in the story is King Solomon, and then there's an unnamed girl. Uh, commentators believe that there's two options. Either this is Solomon's first marriage, because if you know anything about King Solomon, you know he's not the poster child for romantic love or marriage. Uh, but this, it's possibly his first marriage ever, or It's a hypothetical story, and King Solomon is just the guy in the story. Regardless of what is actually happening, here's what we know. God is ultimately the author of Song of Solomon. And what God is doing is he is giving us a picture of the ideal relationship. That's what this is. It's a picture of the ideal relationship. And what we're going to see is conflict is a part of God's ideal relationship relationship. We're going to be starting in Song of Solomon chapter 5, verse 2. And so if you were to go and read the first four chapters, what you would see is you would see Solomon and this girl prior to marriage. And then in chapter 4, God allows us actually to be creepers in the honeymoon suite. Like on their wedding night, we see all of it. How interesting does that, I mean, this is God's word, which is crazy. We're not going there. So if you brought your kid to the service, you're like, oh, thank goodness we didn't come for chapter four. Chapter five, though, um, Solomon and his girl have been married for some portion of time. We don't know how long they've been married. But we step in, and for the first time in the book, we're going to see conflict. So let's just set the scene. I want you to get an idea of what's happening. I want you to know I consulted 11 different commentaries, 11 different sources to make sure I had my mind around this text. People debate one thing. The thing that they debate is whether the girl in the story is awake or asleep. Like, is she dreaming or is she awake? 
I'm going to take a hybrid approach. I think that there's times where she's awake. I think there's times where she's dreaming. In the end, it doesn't matter. The application is the same, so don't get hung up on that. Here we go. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 2, says this. It's the girl talking, and she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. What does that sound like? That sounds like a restless night where she's in and out of consciousness, and I think that that's what we see throughout the text, okay? But as she is asleep, there's a knock at the door, and it's her husband Solomon knocking, and listen to what it says. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is what would do my locks with the drops of the night. What does that sound like? The men will probably get it before the women. That sounds like a man who wants to make love to his wife. That's actually what's happening here. Solomon comes home from a late or a long day of work, and he's wanting to get busy, and so he pulls out his best material. I don't know if you saw it, but what did he say? Open to me, my sister, my love, my perfect one. My he's, he's digging deep here. Okay, The last time that Solomon used this exact language was in chapter four on their wedding night. Like he says the same exact thing. So he's like, man, if this is going to happen, I'm going to the wedding material. Like it worked out for me then, surely it'll work out for me now. But watch the girl's response, verse three. She says this, she said, I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? She's like, okay, Solomon's thinking this is gonna happen, I've already bathed my feet. Tonight is not going to be his night. So let me just share this just for the heck of it. Um, ladies, I believe that this is true, but every wife in this world has some, some article of clothing that is extremely comfortable for you to wear and extremely uncomfortable for your husband to look at. Like it might be, <laughs> it might be an old t-shirt that you've had for 20 plus years. It could be a pair of pants, like in our marriage. It was this pair of pants that my wife had that we called her genie pants. And I don't know why we called them that because there was nothing magical about these things. <laughs> but we called them that because they were green, they were shiny, and they ballooned out. Like the, these should only be found on either Aladdin or MC Hammer. Those are the only two people that deserve to wear these pants. Anytime my wife wore the genie pants to bed, I knew tonight is not my night. That's what I knew anytime I saw those things. And so when I, the reason I tell you that is that we're looking at this text and here's what the lady is saying. She's saying, hey, the genie pants are on. I have already washed my face. I've even washed my feet. This isn't happening. And so then, verse 4 says this. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him but he gave no answer. And so here's what we see happening here. Uh, the girl's in bed, Solomon has come and knocked on the door, and we don't know how she, uh, what she actually did. Like all we know is that she didn't go and let Solomon in. We don't know if she kind of played dead and it was kind of like, she's gonna be quiet. This is a real tactic, ladies, that you can use where you just <laughs> act like you are already out, you are already asleep, and I'm just gonna wait till he's gone. Like I don't know what she did. 
But what happens is she has a change of heart. She has a change of heart, and, uh, and I think what happens is she realizes that her response wasn't the right response. Now, here's what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that if Solomon's in the mood, she needs to get in the mood. That's not what I'm saying. I think she's realizing there was a way that I could have responded to my husband that would have been more loving and honoring. Like I could have gotten up and opened the door. Like, could I, I, like I could have unlocked the door and opened it and looked him in the face and said, I love you, but I'm tired. Like that was an option as well. I think she's realizing I could have responded differently. So she gets dressed, she opens the door, and by the time she's gotten dressed and gotten to the door, Solomon is already gone. She calls for Solomon and there's no response. And for the first time in the book, what we see is we see a disconnect between Solomon and his wife. For the first time in the book, we see separation between the two. And the reason that I really appreciate this is because, as I've already said, this is meant to be God's ideal picture of what romantic love is to look like. And within the confines of God's ideal relationship, conflict exists. And I think it's good for us to realize that. Some of you need to hear that because you Um, have such unrealistic expectations of marriage. Like you put a weight onto the shoulders of marriage and the shoulders of marriage cannot hold that weight because you've convinced yourself that marriage is supposed to either be a fairy tale or a rom-com. Marriage is always supposed to be packed full of romance and you should always have all of the feels and everything should always be easy and it should always just work and it should always be blissful and it should always just be right there at the the peak of romance and that's just not reality. Why? Because you are in your marriage and you are an imperfect person and you brought selfishness and insecurity and pride into your marriage just like your spouse did, just like I brought into my marriage. Marriage is two imperfect people coming together and having to figure it out. And so you have to figure out how to stay together in the midst of your pride or in the midst of your insecurity, in the midst of your selfishness that rears its head. But the good news is that marriage doesn't have to be, or conflict in marriage doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can actually be a God thing. The reason I say that is because I want you to just think about the point of your life. What's the point of your life? Like, why do you exist? Don't you want to know that? Like, why are you here? Why do you still have breath in your lungs? You exist to know Jesus and to make him know. That's it. That's why you exist. No matter whether you're a Christian or not, you exist to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. And so God's desire for you is to look as much like Jesus Christ in this life as possible. If you choose to get married, you know what God's going to do? Marriage will become the number one way that God identifies the areas in your life that are out of sync with who Jesus is. Like I still remember the first time that God was like, now it is time for me to reveal to you that you are selfish. And he did it in my first year of marriage. 
Like I still remember where I was sitting in our apartment where God just kind of blew up my world. And he was like, hey, there's some selfishness inside of you that we just need to work on. And I didn't realize that I had that selfishness inside of me because I had memorized Philippians 2, which says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. I'm like, I know that verse. I feel like I live out that verse sometimes. And God's like, thank you. I'm glad you memorized it. I'm glad you know it, but I need you to live it a little bit more than you do. And then we had kids and he was like, let's just go down the rabbit hole of selfishness a little bit more. And I was like, God, I get it. I'm not having any more kids because if this is what happens when more people get added to my life, you reveal more. I can't take it. But that's what God will do with marriage is he will use it to sanctify you. He will use it as an opportunity to grow you. That's why marriage doesn't, or conflict doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can actually be a God thing. And I just want you to think about this. We're here this morning to rally around good news. Like, we're not just here to be better people. We're here because we have a message worth celebrating. And it is a message of forgiveness and reconciliation. That's what the message of Christianity is. That Jesus Christ has come to reconcile us to God the Father. He has made a way when there was no way for us to be at peace with God. Our story, if we know Jesus Christ in a personal way, is we were children of God's wrath, and now we are children of God. Like we were children of wrath, now we're children of God. We were deserving of wrath, but we're recipients of the love of God. It's a message of reconciliation. It's a message of forgiveness. When you choose to to a fight in a way that is honoring to the Lord, that is actually possible. To fight in a way that is honoring to the Lord, you know what you can do? You can actually put the forgiveness and reconciliation of Jesus Christ on display to the world. Like your imperfect marriage and the conflicts that happen in your marriage can actually testify to the goodness of God. I just want to be clear. I need this message just as much as you do. Like in preparation for this message, Catherine and I fought just this week. So if you're sitting there looking at me saying, oh, that's easy for you to say all this because you're a pastor and you guys don't fight. I don't know who you think I am. (laughs) But we have a very imperfect marriage, but I love our marriage. And even 13 years in, we need to grow in the way that we fight with each other. But conflict doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can actually be a God thing. Now, what I want you to see is um, the girl, I believe, gets back in bed and goes back to sleep, and she's going to begin to dream. And as she dreams, I think that God is going to begin to reveal to her um, the best way to proceed. So look at verse 7. It says this, The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. Now, let me just stop right there and tell you what I think is happening here. The reason that I think she's dreaming is because she gets beaten up by the watchmen of the city. If she's married to Solomon, she's the queen. No one's going to beat up the queen. You beat the queen, you're going to get beat for beating up the queen. So this is a dream. I think that 
that the watchman beating her is meant to symbolize God's conviction in her life. I think that God in her dream is simply showing her, hey, there's a better way for you to respond to your husband. Now, just to be clear, I don't think that this is a massive earth-shattering conflict between Solomon and his girl, but it's conflict nonetheless. And I think that God is just showing her, hey, you could have responded differently. Again, it's not about whether or not she's in the mood. This has everything to do with simply her response. She could have opened the door. She could have looked her husband in the face and actually communicated in a way that was appropriate. And so what we see right here is we see that God has a voice into their conflict that God is convicting her and actually speaking in. And so let me just say this. If you want to thrive in conflict, if you want to have a healthy marriage, and I assure you, God will need to have a voice in the midst of your conflict. Like, you will need to give God the space in your life to speak into your life in the midst of conflict. The best place to be is in the middle of conflict, responding to God instead of reacting to the other person. This is the difference between a two-minute conversation and a two-hour fight. That's the difference. You want to transition from a two-hour fight or a two-day fight to a two-minute conversation that just clarifies things, then you have to move yourself to a place where God gets to speak in and you respond to God instead of reacting to the other person. We are reactors. Our tendency is to react. It's like, you hurt me, I want to hurt you. You said something mean, so I'll say something mean. You're trying to win? Fine, I'm going to try and win. That's what we do. We're just constantly reacting to each other. And when you react, all you're doing is you're stoking a really unhealthy fire. So we have to get to a point where we allow God to speak in and we respond to whatever God's saying. So let me just give you three good questions to ask God in the middle of a fight this week. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if God gives you an opportunity to apply what we're talking about today. I'm sorry you came to church today. Anyway, (laughs) let me just give you three questions that I want to encourage you to ask. The first question is this, am I assuming the best? Like, am I assuming the best of the other person? Like, when Catherine and I get into a fight, here's a good question for me to ask. Is Catherine out to get me? Like, is Catherine trying to ruin my life? Like, is she doing this to ruin me? The answer is always no. But there's times that I don't assume the best, I actually assume the worst. It's like, oh, she did this because she wanted to frustrate me. She wanted to, she's trying to annoy me right now. That's the worst thing that I can do is assume The worst, instead of assuming the best, the reality is anytime Catherine and I have conflict, it's usually just a misunderstanding or there's unspoken expectations and I think things should go one way when I haven't even communicated that to her and she's operating from a different framework. So it's just a misunderstanding. It's it's misaligned expectations. So one of the best places to start is just say, look, this person isn't out to ruin me. What if there's just a misunderstanding there? What if there's some confusion? I don't think that it's her intention to hurt me. Second good question to ask yourself is this, is am I majoring in a minor? 
My friend Blair Browning loves to say, don't major in the minors. You're just asking yourself, is this really that big of a deal? Like, I'm working with my kids on that right now. Isn't that crazy? I need to be working on something that my, my 10 and 8-year-old need to be working on right now. So this is what I've talked about with my kids just this week. I'm like, hey, is this a small deal or is it a big deal? We use our hands. Small deal, big deal. Okay, great. Are you having a small reaction or a big reaction? Okay, so if this is a small deal, you're having a big reaction to a small deal. Maybe we need to do that in our marriages. Like you might, people might think you're crazy, but if you're fighting in public, just be like, small deal, big deal. You'll be like, okay, that guy's crazy. But anyway, that's, isn't that what happens so often is we have big responses to small deals. That's why people like lose their ever-loving minds when someone forgets to take out the trash. Or like people will be on the doorstep of divorce because they can't figure out where they're going to eat dinner tonight. <laughs> huge reactions to small issues don't major in the minors. If you have thin skin, you better find some different skin. Because imperfect people find their way into marriage. You're just as imperfect as your spouse. So we have to figure out how to play together. The third question that I think you should ask yourself, let God speak in, is this, is am I at fault in any way? Am I at fault in any way? That's the hardest question to ask is what's my part? It's really easy to see what your spouse has done, no, no doubt. But what have you done? Like you might be the offended, they might be the offender, but if you're responsible for even 5% of the argument, you need to own that. Like, do you have 5% in the fight? If so, you need to acknowledge that. And so let me just say this. When you ask God, am I at fault in any way? If God reveals something to you, then you need to ask forgiveness for it. Let me just say this. If you want your marriage to last, I promise you, you will have to get really good at saying the words, I'm sorry, and I forgive you. Like, let's just practice that right now. We're all just gonna say it out loud right now. On the count of three, I just want everyone to say out loud, I'm sorry, okay? One, two, three. I'm sorry. Very good. That's great. Now let's just try, I forgive you. Here we go. One, two, three. I forgive you. That's great. Awesome. Well done. Some of y'all hate that I just made you do that. You're like, this is so dumb. I didn't come to church to feel like a puppet, all right? You want to know why I did that? Even if you hated that, you know why I did that? Because if that's the first time that those words have come out of your mouth in a long time, I promise you, you're a difficult person to live with. <laughs> like if the person sitting next to you, if that's the first time they've heard those words coming out of your mouth in a long time, let me just tell you, something is short-circuiting in your life. Let me just identify the three most miserable people to be married to, okay? And let's just do self assessment right now. <laughs> Here are the three. Number one, the I'm right and you're wrong person. It's a tough person to be married to. The I'm sorry but person is tough to be married to. That's number two. And number three is the I'm sorry but I'm not really sorry person. See, the first person is the I'm right and you're wrong person. That's, that's pretty self-explanatory, but it's I'm right, you're wrong, and I need you to see that I'm right and you're wrong. And if I need to keep telling you and explaining it until you get it, 
that's what's going to happen. That's the first person. The second person is the I'm sorry, but person. It's the, hey, I'm sorry that I did that. But I did that because you (laughs) did that. It kind of like cancels out your apology. And then the third person, this is my least favorite. It's the I'm sorry, but I'm not really, I'm sorry, but I'm not really sorry person. It's the, I'm sorry you got your feelings hurt. That's not an apology at all. Hey, I am so sorry that you decided to get your feelings hurt. That is like a, that's the subtlest slap in the face possible. It's like, hey, I am so sorry that you got your feelings hurt. (laughs) Hey, we have to be people who are good at apologizing. This is as practical as it can get people. You will need it in your marriage, I assure you. Look back at the text, verse 8. Again, she's dreaming, and God is showing her the best way to proceed in marriage. Verse 8, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I'm sick with love. So she's in her dream, she's talking to her friends. Look at what her friends say back in her dream. What is your beloved more than another beloved? O most beautiful among women, what is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? Do you see what her friends are asking her in her dream? They're saying, don't you think you might be able to do better than Solomon? Like, you're the most beautiful woman in town. Who is he? Does he really deserve to be with you? I think what's happening is God is showing her in a dream what she might tend to ask herself in the middle of conflict in reality. And in her dream, God doesn't even let her stop to answer that question. God just shows her the exact right way to respond when that question comes up. God leads her in her dream to understand and realize everything about her husband that she finds desirable. Watch this. This is, this is so great. Ladies, underline all of this material. Use it with your man today, all right? <laughs> Verse 10. This is good stuff. Uh, she says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. She's saying he's good looking and there's no one like him. Verse 11, his head is the finest gold. His locks, that's his hair, are wavy, black as a raven. Like your hair reminds me of a bird and not a great one at that. Okay, <laughs> verse 12, his eyes are like doves beside streams of water bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. This is good stuff, ladies. Uh, Verse 13, his cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. She's talking about his beard. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. Now, I guarantee you my wife has never said this to me in our marriage. Verse 14, his arms are rods of gold. Men, how great would that be for a lady to be like, baby, your arms are like rods of gold, set with jewels. Listen to this. You've got a dad bod in here, a dad bod in here. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. If you want to know if his legs are like toothpicks just supporting his body, this wasn't the case for Solomon. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Look at her conclusion in her dream. He is altogether desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. I love it because at the end, um, God brings her to this point where she is remembering everything about her husband that she finds 
desirable. And I think that this is really important because you need to know when you find yourself in the midst of conflict, comparison will be an option. Comparison will be an option. But you need to know comparison kills closeness. Comparison always kills closeness. You have to remember that you have an enemy who hates you, and his goal is separation in your marriage. And one of the best ways that he accomplishes his mission is through comparison. But you need to know that when you are in a fight, you know what you will compare? You will compare the undesirable qualities of your spouse to the desirable qualities of someone else. Your spouse will never win that comparison. Never. And so what God is showing her in a vision is you need to take time, even in the midst of conflict, just think of one desirable thing about your spouse. Just one. You might see a bunch of undesirable qualities, but just think of one. Like there's times when Kat and I have been fighting for 30 minutes, and we're just kind of picking at each other, and God will just remind me, hey, you're married to the funniest woman in the world. And one of the reasons that you love being married to her is because you guys love to laugh with each other. You're spending all your time nitpicking about something you won't even remember three days from now. So why don't we get done with this and get back to the stuff that you really enjoy? So you might just have to pause and just say, he's really not a monster. And I know that because there's at least one thing that I still really appreciate about him or her. Chapter 6, verse 1, in her dream, she says, her friends are talking, and they say, where is your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where is your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? They're saying, hey, we'll help you find him. Do you know where he is? Verse 2, in her dream, she says, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lily. So in her dream, she sees that Solomon is in one of his gardens working. And I love how her dream ends because her dream ends with her saying the same exact thing that she said before she and Solomon got married. She says, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. So God ends her dream with the two of them reconciled to one another. And I love that because that is God's desire always for a husband and wife, no matter the conflict. His desire is always for the two of them to move back towards one another. So God's saying, this is the vision. This is the goal. When you wake up, this is what you pursue. And I love it because as we transition to verse 4, you know what we see? We see Solomon and the girl talking with one another again. So the implication is that she wakes up and she goes straight to Solomon. Let me just pause here and say, you want, you want a healthy marriage? Then when conflict surfaces in your marriage, I just want to encourage you, be a problem solver instead of a problem spreader. And the way to do that is to go directly to the other person. You know, we saw her in her dream anxiously pursuing Solomon, trying to find him. And that's what you do when conflict surfaces. You go to the person. Don't be a problem spreader. Be a problem solver. Like when Catherine and I have conflict, you need to know Catherine has an incredible relationship with her mom and her sisters. They talk multiple times a day to each other, often on a whole family conference call. Like the girls just round up and they talk about life. But when Catherine and I are in conflict, she never calls her mom or her sisters to complain about me. 
And when we're in conflict, I don't ever call my dad or my brother or my guy friends to complain about her because I don't want to spread the problem. You have to understand when you take your problem and you spread it to other people, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find gasoline instead of a fire extinguisher because you're going to find people who only hear your side of the story. So they're going to be like, yeah, he is a jerk. Yeah, she is losing it. Yeah, maybe you did make a mistake. Maybe you do need to get out. You know what? Single life's much better than married life. You're going to find gasoline instead of a fire, a fire extinguisher. You know where the fire extinguisher is found? It's found in submitting your life to Jesus Christ, saying, Jesus, you've forgiven me. Surely I can forgive him. Will you lead me right now? Go to the person. Don't be a problem spreader. Be a problem solver. If you're sitting there saying, yeah, that, that's not realistic. We're pretty jammed up right now. I can't see a path forward. If that's where you are right now, let me just encourage you, go together to a third party. Go together. But you don't go individually. You go together. So for you, if you feel jammed up right now, that might mean calling the church this week and just saying, we need to sit down with a, with a pastor. Come sit down with Dan or, or with Wayne and just get some direction. Go see a, a marriage counselor. Catherine and I love marriage, but we've gone to counseling for our marriage. And I'm so glad we did. Don't wait till your marriage is burning to the ground to actually realize that you need help. Go together and get a, an outside third party's help. Now, who do you think spoke first when Solomon and his girl are back together? Well, you would think that at least in this story, Solomon is the offended, she's the offender, and again, this isn't a big conflict, but you'd think she'd speak first, but no, it's Solomon that speaks, and look at what he says. Guys, I want you to imagine having this response when you feel hurt or wronged. What does he say? He says, you are beautiful as tears of my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. He's saying, you're beautiful and I respect you. That interesting? Guys, I just want to encourage you, when you're in conflict, be the first to initiate reconciliation. Like, beat your wife to the punch. Women, that doesn't mean that you don't actively pursue reconciliation. I'm just calling the men. Like, let's work together. Let's, let's fight together to be the type of men, the type of husbands that want reconciliation and forgiveness to permeate every area of our marriage. Let's, let's be the first there, no matter whose fault it is. Now, I want you to think, how is Solomon able to have this type of reaction? Well, it's not a reaction, it's a response. He's responding to God instead of reacting to the person or to the situation. Here's what I want to do. I just want to give you three, three words of encouragement, three action steps like when conflict arises in your marriage, I just, if you want to thrive in marriage, if you want to thrive in conflict, if you want conflict to not be a bad thing but a God thing, I want to encourage you to take these three things to heart. Number one, the goal isn't to be right, the goal is to be reconciled. I hope you hear that. The goal isn't to be right, the goal is to be reconciled. So often we need to win the fight. But I just need you to know, if you have to win the fight, you will lose something. In your attempt to win, you will lose. You will lose something. You'll lose sleep. You'll lose respect. 
You'll lose control or you'll lose the relationship. But if you have to win, I promise you, you will lose. The goal isn't to be right. The goal is to be reconciled. The second thing is this, forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness isn't a feeling like if you wait to forgive until you feel like forgiving or if you wait to ask for forgiveness until you feel like asking for forgiveness, you'll never forgive and you'll never ask for forgiveness because forgiveness isn't a feeling. It is a choice that you often make despite how you feel. The third truth is this, treat every offense like it's a first offense. Did you hear what I said? Treat every offense like it's a first offense. See, our tendency in marriage is to get historical. You know what I'm talking about, getting historical? That means that you keep track, like you catalog the wrongs. So what you do is you're like, oh, okay, man, he, he, he did this here, he did this here, he did it again, he did it again, and you just stockpile a record of the wrongs. The problem is, is when you get historical, you know what happens is you begin to make bigger and bigger deals of small things. So your marriage will be on the line from the smallest things. You'll know if you're getting historical if you use the words always or never when you're fighting. You always do that. Of course, you never do that. Yeah, you never yeah, I can't count on you to do that because you never do. Of course you did that. Yeah, that's what you always do. That's what you always think. That's what you always say. That's what you always do when this happens. It's getting historical. It's extremely unhelpful for your marriage. But the model is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, he canceled out the entire record of our wrongs. Like he doesn't, he didn't just cancel it. He took it away, nailed it to the tree. So when you and I get historical, what we're saying is, Jesus, I know you don't keep a record of my wrongs, but I'm keeping a record of his. Oh no, I'm going to make her pay for that because she just keeps doing that. Every day we operate with a clean slate before the God of the universe. What would it look like for us to be so forgiving that we treat every offense like it's a first offense? Just want you to see how things finish with Solomon. Listen to what he says, verse 5. He says, turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Listen to this. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. That's good, men. Don't use that today with your wife. Do not do that. This is my favorite. This is pretty incredible. Verse 6, he says, Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one of them has lost its young. He's saying, babe, your teeth are all white, and they're all present. Like, you've got it going on. It's amazing. <laughs> Verse 7, he says, Your cheeks are like halves of pomegranates behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, and they praised her. You know what Solomon is doing here? He's taking her back to their wedding night. He's saying things that he said on their wedding night. You know what he's communicating? He's communicating conflict doesn't change commitment. 
Conflict doesn't change commitment. If you are married or if you're going to get married one day, you stood on an altar, you will stand on an altar and you're gonna share vows. And if you do the traditional vows, you're gonna say, I so-and-so take you so-and-so to be my husband or to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health till death do us part. What you're saying is, Hey, I don't even need to know what's ahead. I don't even need to know the tough times that await us. I'm committing from now to love you. See, love is often a choice. And conflict doesn't change commitment. For Catherine and I, divorce is never on the table. So if divorce isn't an option, reconciliation has to be. Because I refuse to just live under the same roof hating each other. So if divorce isn't an option, reconciliation has to be. Will you fight for your marriage? Will you fight for your marriage? Because when you're fighting with one another, you just have to make a choice. Are we going to fight together for our marriage? This is a marriage worth fighting for because God brought us together. What God has brought together, let not man separate. But God, would you give me the grace today and the strength that I need today to operate in a way that is loving and honest and respectful with my spouse? Jesus is the example for us. He is the example for us. For Jesus, it wasn't a matter of being right. It was a matter of reconciliation. That's why he was able to stand silent before Pontius Pilate. Why? So that he could reconcile you and me to the Father. Jesus responded to God instead of reacting to the people. That's why we find him in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus chose to forgive. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And now if anyone is in Christ, there is neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. See, conflict never changes commitment. There's no sin, there's no conflict that you can feel with God that will ever change his commitment to you. Forgiven people, forgive people. Conflict doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be a God thing, and I pray that it would be. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we all need to take a step today with what we're talking about. There's no one who does this extremely well or perfectly, God. We all need your help. We all need your grace in our lives. Jesus, you've given us the example. You've shown, it, shown us what it looks like to value reconciliation over being right. You've shown us how to choose to forgive. You've shown us how to respond to God instead of react to the other person. God, would you strengthen us today? God, I pray for the marriages represented in this room. I just pray for your hope. I pray for your healing. I pray that people would be willing to take a step. That means going to see a counselor. May they do that. It means just sitting with their spouse this afternoon saying, hey, we love marriage and we're doing great, but where are the weak spots? Let's, let's work together to have an even healthier marriage than we do now, God, lead us. We want, we want your way for our lives. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.